welcome to Two Minute Stories on Lockdown, episode dos, episodio dos. Good grief, we're quite far into this thing now, aren't we? How far? Six weeks? Seven? Eight? Nine? Ten? A thousand? It's getting a bit samey, isn't it? A wee bit, wee bit samey. You finding it samey? How are you doing? Are you talking to your cat? Are you communing with your bathroom tiles? Are you obsessively dusting every crevice? Or are you lying, helpless, in your bed, wrapped in your duvet, weeping? I hope it's not that one. I mean, that's the worst, clearly. I mean, the dust is quite productive. In episode one, I I lamented the lack of a co-host. I do miss having a co-host. It was nice having a co-host. Hey, <laughs> in episode one, yeah, you revealed the limits of your Scottish accent. Yes, I did co-host Chris. Thank you. Thank you for reminding everybody. If only Mark or Helen were here, eh? If only I shared a house with Mark or Helen, but they're off in other houses. God damn them. What have I been doing? What has Chris been doing in the past week or so? I mean, reading and writing and staring out the window. And yes, more running. I've been running less this time, actually, because I figured that uh, I'd overdone it a bit. What have you guys overdone? Have you been overdoing takeaway pizza? Have you been overdoing... Have you been overdoing Netflix? Have you been overdoing ennui? Don't be fearful, everybody. Twill end. Twill end. Would you like to know who we've got on the show today? We've got Oliver Harris. Lucky you. Crime novelist. Oliver Harris, he's the author of three novels featuring London detective Nick Belsey, The Hollow Man, Deep Shelter and The House of Fame, and one featuring intelligence officer Elliot Kane, which is 2019's A Shadow Intelligence, highly recommended. He has an MA in creative writing from UEA and a PhD on antiquity in the work of Jacques Lacan. I don't even know who that is. And we've got Natalie Burdett as well. Natalie Burdett was selected by Carol Ann Duffy as a Laureate's Choice Poet for 2018. Oh, yes. With her pamphlet Urban Drift, published by the Poetry Business. She's currently studying for her creative writing PhD at M.O. Muse Writing School, as am I. So there we go. Novelist and poet. We're going to hear their thoughts. We're going to hear some musings on South Korea from Ollie. And how they've handled the outbreak and the role of a particular church, which some of you may have read about. I'm gonna I'm gonna talk with Nat about walking and perhaps the lack of walking. Shall I tell a joke? Shall I tell a joke? What's brown and sticky? Yeah, you don't need the punchline. Shall we hear from Ollie? Let's hear from Ollie. 
I think a lot of people are wary about writing about the virus, uh, anticipating a, a deluge of infection lit, and at the same time conscious that in many ways it's not dramatic as apocalypses go. But I've been becoming aware that one of the most interesting aspects is not what the virus itself does, but how it exposes pre-existing narratives. The interesting thing is what it reveals, because it's about human contact, who shared what space at what time. And in that way, it's like a, a coloured dye added to the world, bringing underlying stories to light. Nowhere was this more the case than in South Korea, this was partly because of the Korean government's approach to containment, which involved text messaging everyone within a certain area each time a local person tested positive. And they'd give detailed information about where that individual had been, sometimes down to the specific cinema seat they'd sat in, uh, and sometimes with uncomfortable consequences, such as which pay-by-the-hour love motel they'd used. But also because more than any other country, South Korea's outbreak was traceable to a, a single gathering. And I found this particularly interesting because many people at this gathering had hoped to be there in secrets. The Shincheonji Church has a bad reputation in Korea, which is why if you found yourself recruited by one of its army of what the church called harvesters, you might only find out which organisation you joined at the last minute. Its name means new heaven and earth, which is what it promises its many thousands of devoted members. Like all cults, it preys on the lonely and vulnerable, and like all cults, it divides individuals from their unenlightened friends and family. You have been infected by the truth, even if they remain immune. Unlike most cults, it became the epicentre of a pandemic. Before February the 18th, when the first member of the church was diagnosed, South Korea only had 30 cases of corona. Two days later, the church itself was responsible for 53. By the end of the week, 300 members of its congregation had tested positive, and within a fortnight, roughly 60% of an additional 4,000 cases stemmed from the church. It became clear that one particular member, known as Patient 31, had acted as a catalyst. It also became clear after police raids gathered membership lists and other documents that members had travelled to Wuhan in January, where another several thousand devotees worship in hiding from the disapproving Chinese authorities. Soon, rumours about the church themselves spread like an infection, and it became a, a figure of nationwide hate in Korea, just as members were forced to reveal themselves, to be tested and to isolate. Often, these were individuals whose own partners didn't know of their membership, or they'd kept it secret from their parents for years. The virus had become an inadvertent confession. And now there are those smartphone apps which can help you identify the church's facilities around the country. There's over a thousand of them in Korea. Uh, many of these buildings have been attacked. Several members have taken their own life. Some now argue that this fixation on the group has moved the blame conveniently away from the authorities, or conveniently away from mainstream churches or even other cults. Shincheonji was just one of hundreds of cults thriving in a country founded on the idea of remaking yourself, rising from the ashes of destruction, at once excelling as an individual and conforming as a group. Some argue that it's convenient for the self-styled cult hunters individuals whose job it is to penetrate these organisations in order to rescue the men and women lost to the promise of eternal life. Like I say, I'm not going to write about the virus immediately, but if I did, I'd definitely include one of those.
Yeah, we managed to move just before um, everything got locked down. So we kind of been enjoying the new area. Um, yeah, I've been managing to write everything like tutoring students online. It's, it's been all right. It's um, starting to get itchy feet, but I can't really complain. Yeah, I'm the same actually. Really, it's I'm starting to get a little bit a little bit fed up with it, and a little bit. Um, mentally agitated i guess <laughs> at, at all the at all the uh, the sameness uh, yes. and the isolation but at the same time i've had a phd thesis that's badly needed to be finished for a couple of years <laughs> yeah and it's never had so much attention so you know yeah i think i think if you're already quite far along with a project it's good like i'm, I'm editing uh, a, a draft of a novel i've already done one draft i'm glad i'm not having to do something totally new so Touchwood so far not too hellish, but um, it is a bit. It's when it gets to the weekend, you're like, "What should we do?" And you're kind of like, "Shall we walk around the block again?" It's you know. <laughs> yeah. So, so can you talk about the the book that you're working on? Yeah this this is the second in the spy series. It's set on the island of Ascension, so I guess it's kind of feeding relatively well off themes of isolation um, and claustrophobia because it's this tiny island owned owned by the British in the middle of the South Atlantic. And yes, my, my spy has to go there to discover why um, young people are getting killed and going missing there. Uh, it's home to a, a big GCHQ NSA listening station as well as a couple of military bases. So it's one of those very weird fully militarized islands but with a bit of a civilian population on it so yeah great great setting i thought for a, a kind of murder mystery Try, trying to walk the line between uh crime fiction and spy fiction a bit more this time mm. what what drew you to that kind of setting um i think how little it's known I, i'm very interested in the uh, the kind of state infrastructure that we don't really hear about so obviously previously i've written about Cold War tunnels that have been built under cities in preparation for nuclear war. All these things going on. There's, there's so much uh, in the country and, and in the world that um, is to some extent covered by uh, the Official Secrets Act. Um, and when you find whole islands, you know, the, the British Empire, it kind of uh, disintegrated, but a lot of very strategic places were retained um, for the sake of their ra radars and, and antennae but you don't hear about them very often. Um, uh, and this, this is kind of on, on its way towards the Falklands. So I, I'm very curious when you, when you get the, the British holding on to bits of land, you're not sure why. Why are we still in Cyprus? Why, why have we still got Diego Garcia? You know, um, there, there's always a reason. Have you, uh, have you visited no, sadly not. I, I tried very hard to get the funding to go there. I yeah. chose the, the worst possible year. Um, <laughs> they, they, well, for, even before this started, they, mm. they cancelled the direct flights from the UK um, and then had even reduced the flight service from um, St. Helena down to one a month. So it would have meant three flights each way and I would have had to be on the island for a month waiting for the return flight. Um, so yeah, I, I tried, I almost managed it um, and then kind of missed, uh, just as I was coming to terms with spending several grand of my own money, um, it all sold out. So it's probably for the best. <laughs>
t- tell me about uh, your interest in uh, South Korea, which mm. is a, a country that I am connected to as well as you know. Yeah. And and uh, what drew you to uh, the is it the uh, Shincheonji? Yeah, Shincheonji. Yeah. The Shincheonji Church and your um, thinking about that. Yeah, uh, my my partner's South Korean, so over the last few years, I've, I've um, been lucky enough to get an increasing knowledge of, of the society, and I've been over there a couple of times. Um, and it's it's the classic kind of thing that interests me. Uh, place parts of the world that I didn't know much about before, but uh, have an increasing presence on the world stage, and have had this fascinating recent history where they've as I kind of mentioned in the piece, they've risen from the ashes of an awful civil war um, and and Japanese occupation before that uh, into this economic superpower that has then left quite a lot of people in that society strangely alienated um, as as the jobs fell away. You've got a culture of high achievement and hyper-academic achievement that... um, almost leaves people running at an extra high speed, but not always with anywhere to go. That, that's the kind of feeling over there. And I'm sure you kind of have felt a bit of a taste of that yourself. So yeah, I, I was over there when the whole uh, virus thing kind of started. And it was a very small story still at that stage. It was going on in China. I was amazed that my mobile phone, my UK mobile phone, buzzed with an, an, an alert from the Korean government um, regularly telling me, updating me on the situation. So I eventually figured out they must have got my number through some that little bit of paper you fill in as, as you're going through customs um, and you don't think anything else about it, but they had inputted it into their system uh, and were being very um, assiduous, notifying everyone as the situation gradually got more serious. So then, they, in many ways, they were the the first place where it became uh, really catastrophic that that we got insight into because it was hard getting that much information out of China. Um, and I, I was really caught by this story of the Shincheonji cult uh, church that was very clearly the, the epicenter um, of contagion in South Korea. And as I say, because it suddenly exposes um, all these lives, all, all these patterns of connection within it, all these people who had gone somewhere in semi-secrecy um, and were thrust into the spotlight and, and had their lives revealed. Were, were you aware of the, these kind of cultish churches before before all this happened well weirdly um growing up in the 80s that kind of the only thing i knew about south korea was the mooners um it was the the image in the uk for some reason was of these mass uh weddings mass gatherings of um a cult known as the mooners um led by reverend moon um and it in the way that these things go, that that was the kind of the image, the one scrap I had to attach to the idea of South Korea. I really, I mean, until quite recently, um, I didn't have anything else to fix to it. So in a way, it was part of my sense of the country um, and, and fits with what I've subsequently learned, but, uh, but also with a much bigger narrative of Christianity in Korea. Um, which uh, has a huge amount of adherence and is very 
caught up in a complex way with recent history and identity, um, with the American presence there, and and again with a desire to better yourself and join these groups with, with hope of promotion and, and advancements within them. So do you, do you think that you have a sense of what the sort of general opinion is uh, in Korea about uh, the Shincheonji church's role um, in the outbreak? I mean, it, it's, um, there's a huge amount of anger alongside everything else in the culture. There's, there's a huge blame culture. People um, are very quick to identify individuals who've transgressed, who've fallen outside of conventions and, and acceptable behaviour, and they will be absolutely vilified. And this is certainly what's happened with the church to, to a great extent, understandably. Um, but there's also, um, you know, it, it's like everywhere now, it's it's a, a country that runs on social media and social media runs on rumours and extremes, uh, gossip and prejudice. Um, and people were naming and shaming cult members and attacking the buildings Um so, I mean, I don't think that's dissipated at all. I think they, they've done remarkably well in the country, it seems, at containing things without even having a full-on lockdown. Um, and the, the current government has just done very well in, in local elections. But um, partly because so much of the blame was directed towards this church and not the authorities, um, as we've seen in other places. Is this something that you think you're going to write about? No, I, I have um, long, long-term long hopes to write about career in some capacity, possibly as a backdrop for um, a novel in the Spy series. Um, and, and I'd like to introduce a, a cult element. So to, to some extent, yes, but, um, but I, I have no intention of, of actually exploring um, the involvement of the cults with the virus. Very wise. Yeah. <laughs> how do you how do you think that the the situation that we're all living through um, how do you think that that's going to affect your writing? Well, I'm just hoping as little as possible because I don't know how you kind of do justice to, to it. I don't know how you rise to the challenge of of responding in that way. You know, the the fear is is that it eclipses all other potential stories and narratives, in which case I guess you have to respond or give up. But there's so much else that is and was interesting about the world. I'm certainly holding on for a moment, a year's time when when people are hungry for for books and stories that have absolutely nothing to do with 2020. Do you do you have do you have any sense of how this is going to affect uh, the industry, the publishing industry. That's something that I've been chatting about with some other writer friends. Yeah, it's, it's a big question. I don't know. Um, I know there was a huge rush to delay the publication of books so that they didn't appear this summer. Mm. Um, I didn't manage. I didn't manage to stop a book of mine coming out in the states this summer. And there was a lot of talk about. Oh, but there'll be so much more ebook sales and audiobook sales. And I, I, I think now that that's not necessarily manifesting itself. The industry is going to take a massive hit, I would have thought, like every other industry. Um, it's a fragile one. So, I mean, you know, but at the same time, publishing seems to live in perpetual crisis. It's quite used to having to weather the yes. storm. 
So um, it's true. Yeah, hopefully that means it's it's quite hardy and robust. But right now, I'm I'm braced for all eventualities, as as I was before, as as every writer has to be. Really, if you want a slightly more edgy uh, sliver of, of silver lining, as a friend was saying, this isn't the last uh, pandemic we're going to live through. So, in some to some extent, it's a good thing. This hasn't been more deadly than it is while appreciating the the horrific numbers coming out um we're going to be a hell of a lot more prepared next time um as south korea was because it's been through a similar situation before both with sars and mers wait for the next one says ollie harris (laughs) and then optimistic note (laughs) sorry that was me talking with Ollie Harris. And now we're going to hear from Natalie Burdett. My instinct is to stay indoors, avoid large crowds. It always was. We are at home, and water moving through the morning pipes catches its breath. Cars rest in drives. A blackbird stalks the neighbour's cat. Picnic inside. Bake sourdough bread. Order online. It's mad in town. A man is licking shelves, coughing at staff, which only act to prove me right. But don't make this political. The doorbell rings. I bow and bless the man outside. He photographs the parcel on the doorstep, prone. Pain in your chest is probably anxiety. Netflix and chill. Read clever books. Walk every day. Wash hands. Repeat. Banana bread, jigsaws of dogs. Write something that obeys the rules, faces the facts with fortitude. Write chapter one. Edit, repeat, clap hands and wave. Speak to those friends who are alone, the extroverts. Arrange your route around the shop. Efficient, kind. On the way home, the sun breaks free, takes off its mask, bathes the top path in comfort and vitamin D. Briefly forget. Well, I had this idea, and um, I think it, it was about when... um. I was probably quite keen to stay indoors and um, I had this idea that maybe because of the PhD, maybe because I'm lucky, you know, I felt okay about staying in. But then I kind of lost the ability to to see it. So I just thought, oh, I'm not going to be able to do something creative. I I couldn't read poetry for a little bit. It just felt too much. almost like I just wanted to read critical books about place because I found that, you know, less 
emotional and you know something to focus on um and then this the, the rhythm of this piece was kind of in my head so um I managed to kind of try again and, and pull it together and um yeah just about the day-to-day of the way it kind of time's passing actually quite fast I think despite everything that's going on and um just you know the kind of input that you get the suggestions from online you know mm-hmm. all the people of all the um posts of people making bread and failing at making bread <laughs> and just continuing to try you know all this kind of mad experience of you know actually realizing I'm quite lucky in many ways so the experience of living through this this crisis but the tension nevertheless it's all around us all the time somehow um so yeah so I think it's about that really just that experience of being in a weird spot I suppose have you thought about how this this very odd time uh, will affect your writing going forwards? Um, well, I mean, yeah, hopefully it's shown me that um, once you stop faffing about feeling guilty about not writing and actually start writing, everything gets better. <laughs> I need yes. a reminder of that because I do spend so much time procrastinating, but then actually if I've got a deadline and a target, just just get on with it. It's not as bad as you think it is almost. That's so true. That's, that's That describes my life 100%. Everything gets better <laughs> when I just sit down and just shut up and write. Just do it, you know. Even if Even if it means having to wake up at 5 o'clock in the morning to do an early shift before working a full day's work, it's always okay. better if I, yeah. if I just yeah. sit down and write. Yeah, and thinking about it, it's much worse than the actual doing it. Yeah. So have you have you been reading more during this period? I've had it. I've had a stack and it like a leaning tower of Pisa stack of books <laughs> next to my bed for God knows how long. And one of one of the delights of this period is that uh, I'm chipping away at it. It's like a third smaller than it used to be. Yeah, well, yes, absolutely the same, you know, books that um, I, I knew I needed to read and, you know, um, have found really interesting and um, worth reading, uh, you know, I'm I'm getting through them and, and it's really helping me to think. And um, I say I haven't read so much poetry um, as I would usually, but um, yeah, lots of big critical books on place and it's been a joy to be able to do it. So, yeah, I feel like that's... Yeah, no, I, I can't really moan. I've just had to read lots of books, so that's okay, isn't it? I've started I've started wearing reading glasses in the last year, so that's kind of um, oh, have you? <laughs> a, a focus. Yeah, um, so I feel like that's that's good. It's a lot easier to read now um, for long periods of time, so that's good. You're becoming a proper academic. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Or just, you know, middle-aged, but never mind. <laughs> yeah, one or the other. Maybe both. Can you can you tell us about something interesting that you that you've read over this period? Um, well, I've been reading lots of um, books from geography, um, lots of books about um, the mechanics of of walking. So my fieldwork's been about walking the border around um, the Black Country, uh, the region where I'm from, and so I've been reading um, books about other people who walk in different ways and for different purposes um so I'm thinking a lot about you know what does it mean to walk and how can it help us um which is so different because I would be walking now 
instead yeah. of reading about walking. But luckily, <laughs> I've done enough walking to be able to think about the walking that I've done. So eventually, I'm going to go out and walk again. Yeah, so I'm going to go out and walk again, and I'll be thinking in different ways about, oh, actually, yeah, I can see that. So that helps. So what does it mean to walk, and how can it help? <laughs> well, I don't know exactly what it does mean to walk, but for me, walking has always been a key part of the writing process um and it can help us to think about um because i'm walking a, a borderline that doesn't have a natural line on the ground always so it's made me think about how those times where i move away from the border the landscape's affecting me and my perception of the landscape's being changed and then i'm writing poems about the way the landscape has affected me um and that's given me a new way of writing about place that's maybe different to um, what a lot of geographers, not all geographers, um, but a lot of geographers would do. So, yeah, it's made me, you know, realise how much I still do love my project. Have you have you thought about how this, you know, this this strange period, uh, which is that's just the way that I seem to have found to refer to, to this, this strange period, the current circumstances. Um, have you thought about how that's going to impact the world? You know, because I think, you know, as writers have a, we're, we're good at organizing things and trying to make sense of, of the world and the meaning behind what we see, you know, um, so, yeah, have you thought about that, about the kind of the way this is going to affect the world? Well, I mean, I think it's probably showed us that we can stay still and that um, we rely on, you know, key workers and we've kind of taken them for granted a little bit, obviously. But also, yeah, I mean, the fact that, you know, we're not travelling around quite as much shows that this new world is possible, but then, of course the impact it, it's having on people who either have to work or can't work and need to work shows just how much of a overwhelming system we've got into the habit of believing is the only way, but maybe we do need to find a, a different way where, you know, it's a bit more equitable and people can support each other a bit more. It would be nice, it would be nice, it's, maybe it's a pipe dream, but I'm sure there's a new way through. I mean, you know, the the amount of good that people are doing, the amount of risks people are taking for us um, just proves how, how good people are, and I think we have to not take that for granted. I'm sounding like a liberal, aren't I? Bleeding heart, liberal poet, what can I say?
So there we go, everybody. Episode two in lockdown. What have we learned? What have we learned? Well, it's a very interesting talk with Ollie about South Korea. We've learned about, well, we've learned that uh, there are no longer direct flights to the Isle of Ascension. I didn't know that. Did you know that? Probably not. We've learned that uh, South Korea may show up as a backdrop for one of uh, for one of Ollie's future future spy novels, which sounds great. I try to write about South Korea too because I lived there. We'll see who gets there first. Ollie's more successful than me, so <laughs> probably him. And it was interesting talking with that about walking, walking and the effect of not walking. For a walking poet stuck in her house, must be rough for her, huh? It's rough for everybody. Are you going on walks? I'm going on walks. It's nice to get out, isn't it? Just get out and breathe the air for a little bit. Jesus. It's a weird time. It's a weird time we're all living in. Keep your head screwed on, everybody. And thanks for listening. See you next time. Who's going to be on the next show? I should tell you who's going to be on the next show. On the next show, we have the wonderful novelist, Rachel Genn, and the delectable poet, Keith Hudson. There we go, novelist and poet again. Haven't I organised that well? Okay, and I'm going to close this off now with a little piece that I bashed up in about 10 seconds called Earth. It keeps on spinning, doesn't it? The Mersey keeps on flowing. The pair of mallards won't leave the poor she-duck alone. In the third floor of your semi-detached, there's an empty room. Look out of its window. Number 73 has pot plants on the sill, a rack of blinds knotted and drawn, dim darkness beyond. You never see the lights on in that room. What goes on in there? There are jellyfish in the now clear Venice waters, dolphins in the port of Cagliari. You'd been there to Venice in a heatwave, and the canals had stunk of sewage. 17 or 18 years ago, when the earth was more attractively mysterious, and the fifth of your life between here and there yet to play out. You sat on the grass outside the Grand Palace in Innsbruck, recording a biography of Bill Hicks, as the American girl you liked went off sightseeing with the others. You were locked inside then too, really. Would those dolphins have been born then? How long did dolphins live? You swam with a bottlenose as a kid in Ireland, wetsuited for the freezing dingle waters, looking for it through your mask, peering through the murky moss green waters. You'd be there for an hour or three from dawn with the whole family and 40 or 50 others. The second day you saw him, not his dorsal or tail, but his eye, gobstopper huge, side on, not 10 feet away, under the surface, he'd been behind you, and as you turned he seemed to eye you for an elongated moment before he propelled back into darkness. However long dolphins live, that one must have died. The ones in Calgary Harbour, do they have their young alongside? Will they make it to Venice with the jellyfish, belly flip by St Mark's Square? Seventeen years ago, you saw a glass-blowing demonstration there, a red-cheeked, pot-bellied signor puffing expertly down a length of steel. Seventeen years. He might be still spinning, still breathing, still blowing, in a room above a gelateria, 
down one of the unsigned side streets, observing from his balcony the jellyfish. <laughs>